All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Adam Scatula. Uh, I know a fair amount of you, but it's just great to be back with you guys again this morning. Uh, I work at a church down south of the city called Calvary Inglewood. So awesome to be with you guys. And I'm sure I'm not the first one to say, like, there just could not be a cooler place to have church. Come on. This is, this is wild. Um, if you have your Bibles this morning, go ahead and take them out. We're going to kind of be all over the place in the Bible this morning. And let's just go ahead and pray as we get started. Uh, so, Father, thank you again for this church. I, I love coming and being with these people. And uh, would you prepare our hearts now? Would you prepare our hearts to hear your word? Would you fold joy into our hearts? And, and would you speak to us and give us ears to hear and eyes to see? We pray in your name. Amen. All right, well, I was asked to talk this morning about God's promises, how he blesses us with his promises and how they lead us into joy. And I'm super grateful for this topic, especially at the end of a year like this. Um, my guess is that joy has maybe been a little difficult to come by this year. I looked back the other day to check uh, when it was the last time I got to be here with you all, and it was February 2nd of this year. It's just wild to think about that. Since then, we've all faced probably the strangest and most difficult year of our lives, right? It's a global pandemic that has effect, affected literally every person on the planet. In our country and even in our own city, we've faced some of the deepest racial tensions that many of us have seen in our lifetimes. A months-long, contentious and polarizing election job loss, financial hardships like we were hearing about in the video, forest fires here in our state, disagreements on wearing masks, death, loss, divisiveness. They've just been constantly around us in so many unique ways this year. So to talk about joy, we're just trying to get through this, right? We're just trying to kind of keep our head down, keep our lives together. We're trying to stay healthy, keep our bills paid, and just move through this, right? To make it even more complicated, uh, we have to deal as Christians with things like this in the Bible. This is James. This is the first thing he has to say in the book of James. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. This is the kind of thing that makes a lot of sense hypothetically, doesn't it? When we aren't in trials. But in a year like this, wrestling just with the storm that has come upon us all in individual different ways, we, we want to push verses like that away, don't we? <clears throat> There's so many reasons we don't want to deal with verses like that. But here's a major one. We just don't really know how to do it. We don't know how to do it. Count it joy when I meet various trials. How? Joy isn't something that we can just choose to muster up inside of ourselves, is it? If someone comes around, if I come around to you this morning and just tell you that you need to be joyful, you can't just clap your hands and create that in your soul. No matter how good you are at rule following, it can't happen. Joy is a reaction to something, and it seems to actually be the exact opposite reaction we should have in times of trial, right? So how do we do it? How can we stir joy 
into our hearts amidst these very real, very consistent trials without minimizing the trials themselves and without faking it. There are a few answers to that question, but this morning we're going to focus just on one great one, and that is remembering God's promises. Remembering God's promises. Oh, Lord, that we would remember your promises. Before we look at the scriptures, let me start by saying this. It should amaze you, amaze you, that God has made any promises to you at all. Why? First, because we, we have relentlessly sinned against him. In a year like this, with so many big events happening, uh, it's easy to forget that the consequence of all of this, the cause of all of this, is human sin. We live in a fallen world, and we've talked a lot about that in years past, but in this year, we've just been forced to reckon with that in so many obvious, right-in-front-of-our-face ways. There's just evidence of fallenness everywhere, right? But remember, your sin feeds into this too. Your sin, my sin, we've contributed to this year of sinfulness. We've run from God countless times this year. Why does he owe us any promises then? Death, hell, severed relationship. That's what we deserve, if anything. Not hope-filled promises. Secondly, it's amazing that God wants to be in relationship with us. There is relationship between you and God, the creator of the universe. A promise is a relational thing. Sometimes we get so involved in doctrine and theology and lifestyle, we forget that he is a relational God. Our God is a relational God. We don't serve a God who casts down a list of rules, how we're supposed to live, philosophies of how we're supposed to think, and then just stands back to see how we're going to do on the test, right? No, we serve a God who calls us his children. He calls himself our father. He involves himself in life. So let's not take for granted then that God has made loving promises to you and to his people. He has relationship with you. He loves you. He's trying to encourage you always to produce steadfastness in you. Sometimes I call it battle-tested faith. Joy, real joy, can't really come without seeing and understanding the depths of our own sin and the depths of the brokenness of the world first, and then seeing God act on his promises, him keep his promises in the midst of human sinfulness. So here's what we're going to do with our time this morning. Uh, the best way to remind ourselves of the promises of God is just to look at some of them. So we're going to look at three of them. The Bible is packed. It's gloriously packed with so many promises. But we're going to look at three of them today. And for each one, we'll look at its context and we'll make some observations about it. And then we'll talk about what it means for us today. And my prayer is that these promises would stir our hearts into joy and into worship of God this morning, the God who loves you so very much. All right, so go ahead and open your Bibles to Genesis 17. Genesis 17. This is the first book of your Bibles, if you aren't very familiar with the Bible. Make your way to Genesis 17, and while you do, 
Here's what's been going on up to this point in Genesis. Adam and Eve were in perfect relationship with God in the Garden of Eden back in chapters 1 and 2. But they've sinned against God. They've questioned his goodness and his love for them. And they ate the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and God sent them out of the garden. And this whole sequence we refer to in the church as the fall, the falling from perfect relationship with God into sin and death and brokenness. And since that point in Genesis, many years have gone by over these first several chapters, and everything has just been really, really terrible since the fall. Human sin is rampant across creation. But we get to chapter 15, and God has made a promise to a man named Abraham that he will be the first of a great nation of the people of God, that his offspring will outnumber the stars in the sky. He didn't have to make that promise to Abraham, by the way. Abraham didn't do anything to deserve it. God just chose him. This is a strange bit of news, though, to Abraham because he and his wife, Sarah, have no children at all, though they've tried. And they're aging, and they're starting to move past the age when they could bear children. So the idea that an entire people of God would come from their family, it's just confusing. One more detail. As the years go by, they continue to be childless, but they feel like they need to take matters into their own hands. So they decide that Abraham is going to need to bear children with his wife's servant, Hagar. And that's exactly what he does. And they have a son, and they name him Ishmael. They were confused as to why the promise wasn't being fulfilled, so they tried to fulfill it themselves. All right. So that's the context. Here's, here's where we catch up with them for our purposes today. Again, Genesis 17, and we're going to start in verse 15. Genesis 17, 15. Go ahead and look at it with me. God speaks again to Abraham here and says, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and he laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. What's he doing here? He's telling God, Oh, no, no, Lord. Uh, you must have been mistaken here. We actually already refil- fulfilled that promise on our own. Here he is. This is the offspring. His name is Ishmael. But look back at verse 19. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son and shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Okay, so God is made this promise clearly to Abraham here. It's not going to be Ishmael. Sarah is actually going to have a son. Prepare for a miracle, Abraham. But now look ahead with me to chapter 18. Sarah's going to get involved here. Chapter 18, verse 1. And the Lord appeared to him, Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre. And he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. 
So the Lord is literally standing here in the flesh with him now here. As a quick note, uh, many commentators see this as possibly an early appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. But regardless of where you land on that, this is some manifestation of the Lord here now talking to Abraham. So he gets these three men something to eat and skip down to verse nine with me here. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed and said to herself, she, sorry, she laughed to herself saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. I love stuff like that in the Bible. No, you laughed. Abraham laughed. Sarah laughed. Both of them are saying, how can this even be, Lord? Verse 14 is really the key verse I want us to focus in on here. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Well, skip with me ahead to chapter 21, and we're going to see how this all ended up. Look at chapter 21, a couple verses ahead. Chapter 21, verse 1. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Quite a deal. What's happened to them here? They heard this unbelievable promise. They both heard it, and they laughed. But why did they laugh? They laugh because they trust their eyes too much. They trust their eyes too much. And they took things into their own hands because they trusted their own eyes more than they trusted God. They ran the human math, the human equation analysis, and it didn't add up in their eyes, so they took matters into their own hands. And then God shocked the world and changed eternity with the birth of Isaac. This, if you don't know, this is the start, actually, of God's redemptive plan for all of creation. It all starts right here with this little family and this baby, Isaac. Now, what does this promise to Abraham and Sarah thousands of years ago have anything to do with us? Again, so many things we could point to here, but let's just focus on that main rhetorical question we saw. Is anything too hard for the Lord. Friends, that question isn't just for them. That question is in the Bible because it's a question for you. How would you answer that? Ask your heart right now. Are you trusting your eyes too much? Are you making evaluations based on what you can just see with your own eyes? Or are you trusting the Lord and remembering what he's done?
Have you looked around this year or in other seasons of your life and seen brokenness everywhere and thought, where are you, God? Aren't you supposed to be here? Aren't you supposed to do something? Are you even there at all? It's a rhetorical question. Is anything too hard for the Lord? No, nothing is too hard for the Lord. And that is a promise. And it's a promise that you can lean on. If nothing is too hard for him, this means that when you pray for something and he doesn't give it to you right away, or if he doesn't change your circumstance right away, it means he probably wants you to learn something. Testing that leads to steadfastness. Don't miss God's lessons in hard seasons. He's using them to sanctify you, if you'll trust him. We're not just trying to get through 2020, guys. We're trying to see how God wants to grow us and use us in it. And on the other side of trials comes battle-tested, faith-filled, clear-eyed, awestruck joy. He blesses us with his promises and he leads us into joy. That's the first promise. Promise number two. We're going to move to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. This is about halfway through your Bibles, so you can go ahead and turn there now. Isaiah chapter 9. This is one of the promises we quote a lot around Christmas time. I'm sure you've heard it a lot, even maybe this year. Isaiah chapter 9. Here's the deal with Isaiah. He was a prophet in one of the lowest and darkest seasons of Israel's history. At, the time of one of, at this time, they had one of the worst kings that they'd ever had. And there's mass idolatry in the nation to the point that they'd even taken up pagan customs in Israel, like burning their children as offerings to other gods. And war is now coming upon the nation. And in, in this section we're about to read is a part of a long promise that God speaks through Isaiah to this terrible king, King Ahaz, who wants nothing to do with the Lord, by the way. It's kind of an interesting context to get Christmas first, isn't it? Here's what God says to Ahaz. Look at chapter 9, starting in verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, for the staff and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire, for, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Probably not what we expected him to say here, is it? We expected probably condemnation here to this evil king and these evil people. But instead, God gives a hopeful promise. Though God's people live in darkness, though they've run away from him every chance they get, though their sins seem to know no end, 
to these very same undeserving people, a child is promised to be born. God's son will come. The promise is this. Though they don't deserve it, and though we don't deserve it, God is going to rescue his people, and he's going to bring them back to himself to deal with sinfulness forever and to stand as the prince of peace. So we've got to look at how God fulfilled this promise, right? Curveball, though, we're not going to look at the Christmas story here. We're actually going to go to Mark 2. Forgive me for moving us all over the Bible, but Mark 2. This is about two-thirds of the way through your Bible, if you want to turn there. Mark 2, starting in verse 1. Here it is. This is talking about Jesus here. And when he returned to Capernaum, this is Jesus, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. Okay, so here's what's happening. Jesus has begun his ministry, and he's teaching and healing people. And immediately, there are massive crowds who start gathering around him everywhere he goes. So here he is in this packed house. Look back at verse 3. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. It's a bizarre thing to say, right? They've done all this work to get this guy lowered and to Jesus. We're kind of expecting him to say, Son, you are healed, right? Our red flags should go up as Bible readers. Let's learn from him here. He's doing something. Look at verse 6. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Don't miss this. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. God has come to rescue his people. What has he done here? People are coming in droves to hear his teaching, and he's teaching in a way that no one ever has before. He's teaching as one with authority. He is the wonderful counselor, And this man is lowered through the roof. He's doing anything he can to reach Jesus. And Jesus' first word to him is what? Son. Son. That familial language, again, that relational language, the everlasting Father. Jesus has come. Son, your sins are forgiven. The The scribes respond, 
He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? I'm always amazed by Jesus' use of questions. It's incredible here. Watch what he says. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? It's a great question, right? The answer should be neither one. Both are impossible. Jesus answers the question for them. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he does it. He does it in front of everybody. And the crowd, we never saw anything like this. Mighty God, Prince of Peace, he's come. Emmanuel, God with us, has come to deal with the sins of the world once and for all. The only one who can, the only one with authority over sin, has come. So what does this all mean for us today? The people who walked in darkness. That's not just Israel. It's you and me too, right? While people walked in darkness, he sent his son to go and die and defeat sin and death to rescue mankind. That's what we're celebrating when we celebrate Christmas, guys. It's not simply a baby Jesus in the manger. It's a promise fulfilled and fulfilled while we were yet running away from God. Grace, right? The grace of God. This isn't just a cute little baby. This, is, this baby is God, and he's headed to the cross. Born that men no more may die. What a God. What a Savior. If you're a Christian, I pray that you'd spend this season in joy-filled wonder. We did nothing to deserve our own salvation. We did nothing to earn our salvation. But Jesus, the promised wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace, he has paid the price. He has canceled our sin, and he has given us everlasting hope. And what is that hope? This is promise number three. The final promise that we'll look at, go ahead and turn to the last book of your Bibles, Revelation 21. This is one of the great promises in all of the Bible. Revelation 21. The Apostle John is writing this to seven churches, and this is his account of that hope that we, God's people, are headed for if we are in Christ. Every promise that we've looked at this morning has its fulfillment in the Bible, uh, but here we just get the promise. And I'd love for you to do this this morning. I'd love for you to hold in your mind just the memories you have of the difficulties of this year. And while you do that, hold in your mind that accomplished work, that finished work that we just talked about, that Jesus has done. This is the hope that he has for us. Look at verse one with me. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, 
New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So this is God's people here, the bride of Christ. This is us, prepared to watch our God recreate and renew all things. Verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. What a promise. What a promise. All through the Bible, there's a running theme of God constantly saying, they will be my people and I will be their God. And he promises it over and over again. And God's people keep running away and running away. But here, this will be the final culmination. The dwelling place of God is with man. Not because anything we have done. I hope you hear that this morning. Not because of anything that we have done. I heard this image once, and I think it's really helpful. Uh, Our world prefers to picture the gates of heaven as a place where just everybody's trying to get in. Everybody's clanging on the gates, banging, begging to get in. And so God should just be nice and let everyone in, right? Isn't he loving? Here's the deal. We just give ourselves way too much credit when we think like that. The truth is, not a single one of us was ever at any point running toward God. Apart from Jesus, we were all sprinting away, actually, as fast as we could. But God was running after us in his love, and he's just grabbing us by the backs of our shirts, saying, you're mine, you're mine, you're mine, and I'm bringing you back to myself. If you don't know the Lord today, you, you, you're here and you know you're not a Christian. Just know it's not an accident that you're here. It's not an accident that you're watching online. Maybe God is grabbing you by the back of your shirt this morning. and He's about to change your heart. I pray that would be true. If so, repent and believe that he loves you and that he has died to free you from your sin. In this promise from Revelation, God has brought us back to himself through the blood of Jesus Christ. And now he will bring us all as his bride back into perfection with himself. This is the new Eden, the better Eden, the more perfect Eden. And with it, sin and death will fall away and the effects of sin and death will fall away with it. So the question is, do you believe him here? Do you believe him? He's kept all of his other promises, hasn't he? Do you believe him? Again, we see this personal, relational language as we get this picture of God holding us by the face and wiping tears out of our eyes. Everything that's ever made you sad. Everything that's caused you fear. Everything that has brought pain into this world finished only joy in that moment Jesus is king 
We will live with our Savior King forever. And that's the promise. So, to close us this morning, how do we stir joy into our hearts, especially in seasons of trial? We remember his promises. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Remember, it was impossible. It was impossible that you would come back to the Lord, but though you walked in darkness, while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. And because of that, these promises, everything we've talked about today and all of God's promises in the Bible, they are yours. I hope you know that. Jesus has won you salvation and eternity living with our perfectly loving God in joy. And I hope that stirs your heart into joy and hopefulness this morning. God blesses us with his promises. We can't help but feel gratitude and love and joy. On your best days and on your worst days, these promises are for you and they're for your joy that you would remain steadfast until the very end. It's been a crazy year, man. Just a crazy year. And who knows what's coming in 2021 for each of us individually. But let this be your hope and your joy that your God loves you and that he keeps his promises. It's with that in our minds that we'll take communion this morning as we do every week. And we do this to remember what Christ has done. It's an opportunity to again repent, to confess sin, and to celebrate with our loving God, to thank him for bringing us so graciously back to himself. Let's pray. Father, uh, we stand in awe of you, not just in your, your sovereignty and your power, but in your personal graciousness to us as your church and as your individual sons and daughters. The work that you have done is impossible, but you have done it because you are Lord over the universe. And we thank you for caring for us. We thank you for loving us, for bringing us back. Would you both soften our hearts to those truths this morning and as we go about our days and would you encourage us that you are with us and that you love us would you stir our hearts with joy that we get to spend an eternity with you and this lifetime will feel like a breath we love you Jesus we give you the glory and we celebrate you we pray in your name amen